The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 22, verses 35 through 38. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Luke 22, 35 through 38. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Father, I did pray now that you would help us understand this text, that we would apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us the type of courage that can only come from the Spirit, that you would give us faith for things beyond this world. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by having you um, see through Peter's eyes. Try to understand the text in light of one of the disciples that is hearing this from Christ. Imagine being Peter. You're standing there. Your heart is pounding. Adrenaline is running through your veins as your hand clings to your sword that has just removed Malchus's ear. So you're Peter, you're standing there, you just tried to take off a Roman soldier's head and you've cut his ear off. Wishing you had been more accurate, now it's time for move number two where maybe you can remove his head for you're ready to die for Jesus. You just made a promise to Jesus, that you're willing to die for him. Jesus said, you'll deny me, but here he is with the sword, with adrenaline running through his body. And then the unthinkable happens again. Jesus turns to him of all people, the one whom he's trying to protect turns and says, no more of this. No more of this. Luke 22, 51 says. And John 18, 11 tells us that Jesus said, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Would you be angry? Would you be angry? You have the courage to die for Christ. You're standing there. You're getting into a fight. You're going to lose, but you're willing to go down swinging because you love Christ. But once again, Jesus rebukes Peter. This is the third time when Peter thinks he's on the right track that he gets a harsh rebuke. Peter would maybe thought back to Matthew uh, 16, 21, this time when Peter was the first one to say, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And then Jesus said that he was going to go and he was going to be turned over to the chief priests and he was going to be beaten and he was going to be killed. And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, for this shall never happen to you. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, it's not. The text tells us he rebuked Christ. And then Jesus said these words, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. What would that have felt like? Jesus said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus looked at the rest of his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You would think he's doing the right thing. No, you're not going to die. No, it's not going to happen this way. And maybe he thought back of the transfiguration when God the Father speaks out of heaven, basically tells him to shut up. Jesus is in his uh, transfigured glory with Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus' death that is coming soon. And Peter wakes up and sees the glory and sees how good it is and sees Elijah walking away and Moses walking away and he says, wait, 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 let me make three tents. Let's stay like this. This is good that we're together. And then God speaks out of heaven and says, listen to my son. Listen to him. Peter wants victory in the here and in the now and in this world and in the flesh. He doesn't want Christ going to the cross. This is the third time. So here Peter sits, surely frustrated, surely confused. His pride has to be hurt. He had felt so privileged to be with Christ along with other disciples. Moments before, they were imagining the, how, how blessed they were. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? 
Obviously, Jesus is the king and he chose us. We're the lucky ones. We're going to be the glorified ones. And so they argued about who's going to have the highest place in the kingdom. But now, the confusion that must have set in to Peter's mind, it seemed like they were destined for greatness, but now Jesus seems like he's on a course that's going to require them all to be losers. To give up in the face of challenge when you're supposed to have courage. It seems like what's required is that they lay down their life. I'm sure Peter's heart sank as chaos ensued all around him, how did he end up in this place? How did he end up in this very low, rock-bottom place? Moments before this, Jesus said, pray. Pray. The Spirit is willing. He knew Peter loved him, but the flesh is weak. Peter, in his own strength, is clinging to his sword in his own strength and in his own wisdom. The confusion. Did Jesus not just tell him to buy a sword? And now he uses the sword and he's in trouble. If only Peter had understood what Jesus was saying in this text that is before us today. And you and I need to lean in because you and I can be just like him. Willing to die with a gun in our hands. I'll die as long as I get to shoot. As long as I get to fight. There's all sorts of people with that kind of courage in the world. Let's go toe to toe. Your skills versus my skills. My gun versus your gun. We can be just like him. But how about dying as a man or woman who is slandered unfairly? Do you have the courage for that? To die as a man slandered unfairly? Being called unloving? Cruel? Hateful? Being called a bigot or a legalist? Being called a danger to society? A radical, a racist, stupid, naive, anti-science. And not only having all that, but on top of it, to have to preach the message with love in your heart to your enemies. Are you ready for that? You're going to lay down your life like that? Now that takes a different kind of courage. Seems like a big man pulls out his weapons. It's ready to roll. But is Peter ready? He's not at this point, is he? He's not ready to go down the way Christ will have him go down. 
So let's look at the text that he likely misunderstood. The title of this message is Prepare for Rejection. Prepare for Rejection from the World. And you're going to see point one, understand the temporary nature of worldly acceptance. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. All right. So what's he referring to? If you turn back to Luke chapter nine, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and then he sends out the 72. And here's what he says, Luke 9.1. He says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing on your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave town, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And then he sends out the 72. It's similar, uh, Luke 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and set them on, on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, but if, if not, it'll return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, Jesus is training and teaching his disciples an important truth. What he's showing them is, I'll provide for you. You're going to have supernatural powers to heal and cast out demons. And your temptation might be to receive money for that or to become rich with that. But don't do that. Watch how I provide for you. You don't need two tunics. You need one. There will be houses that will accept you, that will give you meals and feed you, and you're going to see my provision. And as you can recall, they came back. They were thrilled. Everything went great. The ministry was powerful. They were casting out demons. It was so victorious. They had homes to stay in and meals to eat. In one sense, they were accepted. Jesus' popularity was still on the, ri the rise. And these were those that had the same power as Christ. And those that 
carried the same message. And so there was a sense of popularity that came with following Christ. But the point of what Jesus says is in verse 36. He wants them to know that acceptance in this world is short-lived. He said to them, but now. Which gives us a clue as to this is the point. This is the way it used to be. But now, it's in the emphatic place. It's what uh, Luke wants to highlight for us. But now it's going to be different. Don't expect ministry to go like it went the first time I sent you out. And he has a reason for it. He says, but now let no one who has our, our, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. So it's different now. Or likewise, a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Buy a sword. Sell your cloak that would keep you warm at night and buy a sword. Well, why? That's what you see in verse 37. Four. Here's the reason. I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. What is he getting at here? Now it's different for this reason. Scripture is going to be fulfilled in the sense that Christ is going to be numbered with the transgressors. And he's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12. Six times in the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is quoted. One of the most important, helpful texts to Christ's work written 750 years before Christ was ever born, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. And here's what we see in that text. What does it mean that he was numbered with the transgressors? What he's not saying there is that he's crucified with two criminals. I don't think that's the point. If you read the context of the whole chapter, he's talking about the most important doctrine after the doctrine of God in the doctrine of salvation is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus paying the price for your sins and my sins by dying on a cross. Isaiah 53, 3. Now sinners, listen to me. This is our, this is our only hope. You're not good and I'm not good. And our only hope when we stand before God someday, when we stand before that throne, our only hope that the perfect judge 
He can't just shuffle sin under the rug. He's perfect. How in the world am I going to stand before his holiness unless someone who's perfect can stand in my place in line, put on Sam Ellison's name badge. This person has to be perfect and go stand before the Lord in my place. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 describes. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was rejected by men. He was rejected by men. Get that in your mind. Do you really want to identify with Christ? He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Do you see how he suffered in your place and in my place? That when God forgives sinners, he didn't just say, oh, I'm going to forgive them because I'm a loving God. But his justice demanded that those sins be paid for and Christ was numbered with the transgressors. When Christ was on the cross, God put your sin and my sin upon Christ and Jesus took the wrath that we deserve in our place so that we can have the peace that he deserved. Because verse 6 tells us what we're like. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Nor did he pull out a sword. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. So that's where he's dying between two criminals. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, which is you and I, fellow Christians. Because of his suffering, he, there's children birthed, born again, forgiven, sins wiped away. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make to be accounted 
righteous, many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, Jesus didn't die for you when he didn't know how bad you were. Jesus knew every sin you would ever do. And with knowledge of all that sin, he willingly went to the cross and died in your place so that you may be accounted righteous. Do you realize you're not righteous, Christian? You still struggle with sin, but you're accounted righteous because of Christ. Before the books of heaven, every Christian has no sin and perfect righteousness in their account. And then we get to the verse that is quoted, therefore I'll divide with him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for transgressors. Now there's two things I think Jesus is saying when he points them to Isaiah 53. First of all, he wants them to see that if you're identified with Christ, you win. You win. Your sins are wiped away. His death for you, it shall prosper in his hand. You'll live and reign with him forever because of his death for you. And secondly, he was despised. And so if you're going to be identified with him in such a way that your sins are forgiven and you have perfect righteousness in your account and his death is your death, you're not going to be able to get away with being identified with him in suffering. If he was rejected by men, you will be rejected by men. Two things. The reason why you need to take provisions now is because that was just temporary acceptance you saw. And that was just a short little, you didn't need to bring extras because you're going to come back to me. And then we were going to have our provisions here. But I'm going to die. And they're going to kill me because the world rejects me. And they're going to reject you too. And you're going to be better off having a warlike mentality. Spiritually. Not with an actual sword. Than keeping your cloak and staying warm at night. As a Christian, you're going to have to fight the fight of faith. So things are different now because he's going to die and he's going to be rejected. The scripture must be fulfilled because scripture is always fulfilled. God can't lie. And he will die. And Peter's been fighting this all the way through Luke. He's been fighting it. And the disciples don't understand it because they can't wrap their mind around 
someone willingly dying and somehow winning a victory. Something that they couldn't wrap their minds around. Jesus had taught them many a times. He'd prepared them for this. This isn't the first time he's telling them that they're going to be rejected. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. For if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of it, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If if they kept my word, they'll keep yours. And then in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So if they hated Jesus without a cause, then they're going to hate you without a cause. And they might hate you with a cause. Because Jesus was sinless and we're sinful. People can hate us because we're jerks or because we're unloving. But there's times when you can be loving your enemies and they can be hating you at the same time. And Jesus said, if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. John 16, the next chapter in John's Gospel 1, he says, I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. But they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Do you realize that when Christians are being killed, most often the person killing them thinks their version of God is happy with them? When you die with Christ, you don't get to die as a, like a hero that people are clapping their hands saying, great job. But you're called a hater, a divisive division maker that's stirring up Jerusalem like they said Christ was, usurping the government. And then he says, and they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He's saying, I didn't start saying this because I'm with you, but now I'm going to go away and you're going to have to toughen up. Your faith is going to have to hang on. You're going to have to get over the fear of man. You're going to have to get over being liked by everyone and being accepted by everyone if you want to follow me. The fear of man is a tough thing. To be called unloving is a scary thing. John 17, he says this, I've given them your word. This is in his high priestly prayer. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And if we were to go back to John 3, when Jesus came, here's what happened. John 3, 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. He's saying, here's what happened. Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So why did they hate Jesus? Just like if you go peel up a big rock out out on the prairie, you, you, you peel it up and you look and the worms and the cockroaches, they all scatter. Why? Because sunlight breaks in and they all take off. And when the light is coming to the world, what did it do? It exposed every human being on the face of the earth that their deeds are evil. So people don't like the light because they don't want to be exposed. So no matter how loving you are, how kind you are, if you're determined to bring truth, even in love, that truth is a beam of light that shines in on sinners. And unless God converts the sinner in that moment, they'll hate it. They'll hate Christ. But if God humbles them and shows them that they can admit who they are and their only hope is in Christ, they'll be saved. Paul experienced this. 2 Timothy 3.10 You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet it is from the yet from all of them the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's not going to get better. They're going to go from bad to worse. In the very next chapter, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, whether it's popular or whether it's not popular. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So he's saying it's not going to get easier the brighter you shine, the more hatred will come. Charles Spurgeon said, it's the ripest fruit that gets picked on by the most birds. The more fruitful you are, the more light you shine, the more you will get picked on. Luke 18 Remember, Jesus said these sad words when he says, I tell you, 
He will give justice to them speedily, to the elect. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Matthew 24, 9 says, they'll deliver you, then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He's speaking of, uh, of at the end. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, these spiritual teachers, and lead many astray. And because, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We live in a lawless culture. We live in a spirit of the age that is pointing the fingers at law as the main problem. The spirit of this age right now where God has placed us has the belief that the main problem isn't in the hearts of men, but in the laws of the land. Now, we're not saying the laws of the land are perfect. But there will be a day when lawlessness will increase, where teachers will be raised up, where the love of many will grow cold. And here's my question. Are you more smooth with your interactions to the world than Christ? Do you do it better? Are you, have you been able to avoid unscathed your walk with God where this world just accepts you? Did you figure out a way to please the world and please God the Father at the same time? When Christ could not do it? You might be saying, yeah, but what about blessed are the peacemakers for the, they'll see for their sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Aren't I supposed to be a peacemaker? Well, yes. You're to make a certain type of peace. You're to make the type of peace among the brethren that can only come when two sinners look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the truth in God's word that can be united in one spirit. But just one verse later, after blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called sons of God, Matthew 5.9, Matthew 5.10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for your for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of god see christian unity is unity in the word but never unity with the world if you shine you'll be rejected you're not smoother than christ in fact christ says in luke 6:26 he says woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Have you been preaching that to yourself that, man, look at all those troublemakers out there and I'm able to just kind of run this middle road. Everyone's happy 
with me. Jesus says, be careful if that's your experience. Because if you're united with Christ and you're shining the light of Christ and the truthfulness of the word of Christ, even when you do it in perfect love, which we never do, but he did, he was rejected and he was hated. So we must understand that identification with Christ comes with suffering first. Then glory will come. And then point three in your notes, understand the foolishness of setting your hope in man. Look at what they say. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what does that mean? Is is this the verse for self-defense? Now, I think you can make it an argument in the Bible for self-defense to protect your family and to protect uh, your life in certain circumstances. I think there's times when you should give up your life if, if they're coming after you for the name of Christ. But this is not a verse to use about self-defense like Peter thought. You say, how do you know he's not talking about a literal sword? Because just moments later, Peter pulls out the sword and gets rebuked. Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, I am. But if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be fighting. And they're not. We know from the context that when Jesus says, it is enough, he's not making such a foolish statement to say two swords are enough to fight a Roman legion of soldiers. Two swords are not enough. What Jesus is saying is, enough of this talk. I just pointed you to Isaiah 53. And I just showed you how I'm going to die for you on the cross. I just broke the bread of the Lord's Supper with you to show you what I'm going to do for you. And you're whipping out swords. And you're not getting it. And you don't understand yet. But Peter ends up getting it. He learns. The Psalms maybe helped him. Psalm 33:16 says this. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Or Psalm 52, 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. How foolish is it when we, in in essence, in our own strength, without prayer, 
in our own scheming. We're going to win. We're going to keep the peace. We're going to do it by our might and our great courage. Psalm 118.8 says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Psalm 146.3 says, do not trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Or how about this one, Proverbs 25.19. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. A lot of leaders today are treacherous men whom Christians look at and are enamored by and start putting their hope in. Your foot will slip. They can't do it for you. I want to end by showing you Peter coming full circle. Because as you know, Peter goes on that same night and he denies Jesus three times. You can kind of understand why he did, right? <laughs> the plan seems to have all fallen apart. He got rebuked again. He's probably angry. He's confused. He's trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? He's following behind Christ. That had to be terrible three days before Christ was risen from the dead and before Christ had breakfast with him on the shore and they were reconciled to one another. But here's what he says when Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 to people that are just about to enter into the persecution under Nero. Here's what he says to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, now listen what he lists off. So born again is, is being converted. You are spiritually dead by the power of the Spirit of God made alive to an inheritance that is imperishable. There's an inheritance for every Christian that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God are, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. All those things he just listed, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later, after he lays out all this blessing of salvation, in verse 13, he says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter says. And some more has happened. Jesus has walked with Peter and said, you're going to die for me. Just like when a person gets old and they're taken to a place they don't want to go and someone else is dressing them 
you're going to stretch out your arms and you're going to die. Because you're identified with me. So Peter already knows this. Peter looks over his shoulder and looks at John and says, what about him? And Jesus says, what if, what if it's my will that he remains until I return? What if, what if that's my will? I get to choose that. But Peter knew he's going to die. And so now he's looking at struggling Christians and he's saying this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ Jesus appears. Because if you set one ounce of your grace in this world before Christ returns, that hope that you have it set on, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your job, it can be taken from you in a moment. And then where are you? But Peter learned that all the hope of the Christian, we can take the battering of the world, the rejection of the world, because of surviving here on this earth is not the point. And so he ends this letter in First Peter in, in chapter 4. He says, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified on a cross and that he didn't want to be crucified like his Savior, so they crucified him upside down is what tradition says. But he learned. He learned that loving the world that wants to kill you and reject you and being able to continue to love and preach the gospel and share the hope, even though that gospel may offend if they're not saved, if they're not humbled. And so let's learn. Let's not be quick to grab the sword and in our own power and our own strength. Rage against the world because the world is raging against you. Let us not be surprised, but let us put all of our hope in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can see a man like Peter who does love Jesus. He loves Christ so much, but he also failed so much and sinned so much. And Father, that's what we can relate to. And so, Father, thank you for being a God that saves us, not by our works. You don't save anyone who's a good person. There is no good people. But you save sinners like us who need you. Thank you for sending Christ that we can have hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.